Welcome to the Think Anesthesia Veterinary Continuing Education Podcast. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Martinez, Board Certified Specialist in Veterinary Anesthesia and Analgesia and U.S. Director of Technical Services at Jurox Animal Health Incorporated. This podcast is race approved for continuing education for veterinarians and veterinary technicians and nurses. Please visit the podcast description at www.thinkanesthesia.education for more information on how to complete the requirements to obtain your CE certificate for this podcast. The content of this podcast represents the best in evidence-based and peer-reviewed medicine. Some content may be the opinion of Jurox Incorporated, a subsidiary of Jurox Proprietary Limited, and its technical services department. As a matter of full disclosure, I need to tell you that I am an employee of Jurox Incorporated. Jurox markets Alfaxin multi-dose for the USA. This podcast contains promotional subject material on Alfaxin multi-dose. Full prescribing information can be found at www.jurox.com US or by reviewing the Freedom Information Summary online by searching NADA 141-342. previous episodes, we have discussed preparing your patient for anesthesia and what to consider when developing an appropriate premedication plan that provides adequate sedation and analgesia. We also discussed the commonly used anesthetic induction drugs for dogs and cats. We are now ready for the next step in the anesthesia process, maintenance of anesthesia. This is usually done by administering an inhalant anesthetic or with a continuous infusion of an injectable anesthetic drug. In the first Think Anesthesia podcast, Preparing for Anesthesia, we discussed how important it is for you to have a standard protocol and process when preparing to anesthetize a patient. This can be effectively accomplished using a safety checklist. The checklist should ensure that everything you need is accessible and ready to use. This includes equipment used during anesthesia, such as making sure the light bulb on the laryngoscope is functional, the cuff on your endotracheal tube has been checked and is leak-free, the monitoring equipment is in good working order, and the anesthesia machine and breathing system are functioning properly. The checklist will allow you to confirm that the anesthesia machine and breathing system is free of leaks, there is adequate oxygen supply, the vaporizer is adequately filled, sodalime is not exhausted if using a circle system, the pop-off is in the open position, and waste anesthetic gases will be properly scavenged. There are several sources for obtaining a safety checklist, or you can develop one of your own. At thinkanesthesia.education, you can download the Anesthesia Safety Checklist developed by the Association of Veterinary Anesthetists. Maintenance of general anesthesia of dogs and cats is usually accomplished with inhalant anesthetic agents. The advantages of maintaining anesthesia with an inhalant anesthetic drug include better control of depth of anesthesia, the ability to quickly change the depth of anesthesia, and rapid elimination of the drug through ventilation that results in a quick recovery. However, administering inhalant anesthesia does require specific anesthetic equipment, including endotracheal tubes, breathing systems, and an anesthetic machine. You must also be able to scavenge waste anesthetic gases to prevent occupational exposure to you and other clinic personnel. In veterinary medicine, the commonly used inhalant anesthetics are isoflurane and sevoflurane. Before we can talk about the similarities and the differences between these two inhalants, let's first talk about MAC, which stands for Minimum Alveolar Concentration. The alveolar concentration of inhalant 
equals the partial pressure of anesthetic at the site of action, the brain. We use end-tidal levels of inhalant to approximate the alveolar concentration. Some multi-parameter physiologic monitors that have capnography capability may also be able to measure end-tidal inhalant concentration. MAC is what we use to describe an inhalant's anesthetic potency and is defined as the alveolar concentration of an inhalant expressed as a percentage that prevents gross purposeful movement in response to a noxious stimulus, such as a toe clamp, in 50% of patients. Anesthetic potency is inversely related to MAC. Isoflurane has a MAC of approximately 1.3% in the dog and 1.6% in the cat. The MAC of sevoflurane is approximately 2.4% of the dog and 2.6% in cats. Solubility is also inversely related to MAC. Therefore, isoflurane is a more potent and more soluble inhalant anesthetic. In practice, you will see that the vaporizer dial will be at a lower setting when delivering isoflurane compared to sevoflurane, but elimination is a bit slower due to a greater tissue uptake than sevoflurane. The MAC given for each inhalant was determined in studies using healthy adult animals with no concurrent medications. It is important to remember that MAC can be affected by many things. MAC is reduced by any sedative, analgesic, or other anesthetic drugs that have been administered. Other factors that influences MAC include patient age, body temperature, pregnancy, and severe hypotension or hypoxia. Interestingly, in human patients, individuals with red hair have a decreased sensitivity to anesthetics and an increased MAC requirement. Knowing the MAC of an inhalant gives you valuable information regarding what you can expect to keep your vaporizer dial setting at during surgery. Clinically, a surgical depth of anesthesia is achieved when delivering an inhalant anesthetic at a concentration of 1.5 to 2 times its MAC. Suppose you use isoflurane for anesthetic maintenance and suddenly there is a shortage and you are unable to obtain additional quantities. One option is to switch to sevoflurane. If you've never used sevoflurane, by knowing its MAC is higher, you now know what vaporizer setting range you are likely to need to maintain a surgical plane of anesthesia. Besides MAC, are there any differences between isoflurane and sevoflurane? Both are eliminated from the body through respiration, with only a small percentage metabolized by the liver and then excreted by the kidneys. Both inhalants produce dose-dependent cardiovascular depression. Comparative studies in dogs and cats have shown no significant difference between the two drugs with regards to myocardial contractility, oxygen consumption, cardiac output, arterial blood pressure, and vascular tone. Both sevoflurane and isoflurane produce dose-dependent respiratory depression, but sevoflurane may cause slightly less respiratory depression at higher equipotent anesthetic doses. Because of sevoflurane's lower solubility, changes in the vaporizer setting will result in a more rapid change in anesthetic depth. This may be important in a critical patient that is not tolerating the inhalant well, and you want to lighten the plane of anesthesia as quickly as possible. Based on solubility alone, recovery will be faster with sevoflurane due to more rapid elimination. However, in my personal experience, the difference may only be a few minutes. Also, many other factors will affect recovery time, such as previously administered sedatives and analgesics, body temperature, and blood glucose levels. Hypoglycemia may delay recovery. 
Environmental stress, including bright lights and excessive noise, may also affect both the time and quality of recovery. Sevoflurane is relatively more expensive than isoflurane. Additionally, because sevoflurane has a higher MAC, a higher concentration will be needed to be deliver to maintain anesthesia. If your oxygen flow rate is the same for both inhalants, then you will use more sevoflurane, making it a more expensive choice. If sevoflurane is chosen because the ability to alter depth more rapidly is preferred, then using a low fresh gas flow technique will make its use more cost effective. We will talk more about low flow anesthesia and other delivery methods in an upcoming podcast episode. Desflurane is rarely used in veterinary patients, but is used in human patients. Desflurane is less potent and less soluble than isoflurane or sevoflurane. The low solubility allows for the anesthetic alveolar concentration to closely represent the inspired concentration, permitting rapid and precise control in changing anesthetic depth of the patient. Desflurane has gained popularity for the use in bariatric surgery in human patients because it results in a more rapid and predictable recovery in overweight, obese, and morbidly obese patients. The MAC of desflurane is approximately 7-10% to 10% in dogs, depending on the study, and 10% in the cat. Desflurane is extremely volatile due to a high vapor pressure and boiling point that is close to ambient room temperature. Therefore, a conventional vaporizer cannot be used. Instead, a vaporizer that heats the agent to 39 degrees Celsius at a pressure of two atmospheres must be used to prevent the liquid from boiling off and to ensure full vapor saturation. Both the cost of desflurane and the specialized vaporizer makes the use of desflurane in veterinary medicine a less desirable option. Nitrous oxide is the least soluble of the commonly used inhalant anesthetics. It is not used as the primary inhalant anesthetic for general anesthesia because of its high MAC value, but may be included in the fresh gas flow along with a primary inhalant anesthetic. Nitrous oxide was more commonly used in veterinary medicine when two older and more soluble inhalant anesthetics, methoxyfluorane and halothane, were the inhalants we had available for use in our patients. Because of their high solubility, it was not uncommon to deliver nitrous oxide simultaneously to take advantage of the second gas effect during the early period of anesthesia. The second gas effect is where the first gas, nitrous oxide, moves rapidly from the lungs to the plasma because it can diffuse more rapidly across the alveolar basement membrane than nitrogen. The rapid exit of nitrous oxide from the alveoli results in acceleration of uptake of the second gas into the blood. The second gas would be methoxyfluorine or halothane, but the second gas effect can also occur with isofluorine and sevoflurane. Therefore, by delivering nitrous oxide with an inhalant anesthetic, the anesthetist can achieve a more rapid change in anesthetic depth versus delivering the inhalant anesthetic alone. Nitrous oxide may also be delivered during anesthesia because of its analgesic effects. By using nitrous oxide as one component of a balanced anesthesia technique, there is a dose reduction in the primary inhalant required to maintain an appropriate depth of anesthesia. The ability to reduce the inhalant requirement may help to improve the hemodynamic status of the patient, which can be a significant advantage when anesthetizing sick or compromised patients. You may be thinking, if nitrous oxide provides these advantages, why doesn't every veterinary clinic use it? There are some precautions to consider when using nitrous oxide. 
Because it is not very soluble, nitrous oxide diffuses back to the alveoli once its delivery to the patient is discontinued. When this happens during recovery from anesthesia and the patient is breathing room air, the rapid accumulation of nitrous oxide in the alveoli will dilute the oxygen present to potentially hypoxic levels. This phenomenon is called diffusion hypoxia. To prevent diffusion hypoxia from developing, it is recommended that the patient remain on 100% oxygen for at least five minutes after the nitrous oxide is discontinued and then disconnect the patient from the breathing system. Another important consideration is that nitrous oxide will diffuse rapidly into gas-filled spaces at a faster rate than nitrogen diffuses out of the space. If 50% nitrous oxide is being delivered, which is a typical concentration when using nitrous oxide, the gas-filled space will double in size after equilibration. Gastrointestinal gas pockets take about 200 minutes to become 95% equilibrated, but the thoracic cavity takes only 20 minutes. Accumulation of gases in the GI tract can result in pain, difficulty in surgically closing the abdominal cavity, and reduced venous return to the heart, adversely affecting cardiac output. If nitrous oxide diffuses into an existing pneumothorax, ventilation and oxygenation will be negatively impacted. The use of nitrous oxide requires additional equipment, including cylinders of nitrous oxide and an anesthetic machine equipped with a nitrous oxide flow meter. From a patient safety standpoint, use of nitrous oxide must only be performed if there are steps in place to prevent a hypoxic mixture from being delivered to the patient. Nitrous oxide is typically administered at a concentration of 50 to 70% of the total fresh gas flow. The anesthetist must be vigilant and confirm that there is adequate oxygen being delivered to the patient. Most modern human anesthesia machines have a hypoxia prevention device. This can include the machine having a preset minimum oxygen flow rate, which will automatically start once the machine is powered on. The minimum flow rate varies, but is usually between 50 and 250 milliliters per minute, depending on the machine and manufacturer. Human anesthetic machine standards also require the machine to have a minimum oxygen ratio that when delivered with other gases, such as nitrous oxide, prevents the user from delivering an oxygen concentration below 21%. This can be done mechanically, leaking the oxygen and nitrous oxide flow control valves such that a change in the nitrous oxide flow rate will be in proportion to the oxygen flow rate. In older human machines and most veterinary anesthetic machines, the oxygen and nitrous oxide flow meters are independent of one another. Because of this, it is possible to deliver a hypoxic mixture if the oxygen flow rate is too low or is inadvertently discontinued. Both human and veterinary patient deaths have occurred when the patient was accidentally delivered pure nitrous oxide. Because of a lack of a hypoxic mixture prevention device, vigilant patient monitoring is even more important, especially the patient's oxygenation status. Because of the euphoric and relaxing effects of nitrous oxide in people, it does have a significant human abuse potential. Veterinarians and practice owners that choose to have nitrous oxide available for use in their patients must have safeguards and protocols in place to prevent diversion and theft for human recreational use. We are now going to discuss maintenance of anesthesia using injectable anesthetic agents. This can be done with either a partial or total intravenous anesthesia technique, commonly called PIBA for partial or TIBA for total intravenous anesthesia. The idea of PIBA is to minimize the amount of inhalant anesthetic agent required. 
thus minimizing the inhalant's cardiovascular depressant effects. Additional advantages of using PIVA technique include enhanced analgesia and decreased waste gas pollution and exposure to veterinary staff. Potential disadvantages are that not only is inhalant equipment still required, but also equipment for the delivery of a constant or variable rate of injectable anesthetic drug. You will need to have a syringe or fluid pump to accurately deliver the appropriate dose of the injectable anesthetic drug. The injectable anesthetic drug used may also have the potential to produce cardiovascular and or respiratory depression. The use of TIVA eliminates the potential for adverse effects of inhaled anesthetic, but doesn't necessarily reduce the equipment requirements. Ideally, regardless of technique used, the patient is intubated and supplemental oxygen is provided. In addition, since the patient is intubated and connected to an anesthetic machine and breathing system, assisted or controlled ventilation can be administered if required. When considering which drug can be used for PIVA or TIVA, the ideal drug should have max sparing properties, provide analgesia, have minimal effects on the cardiovascular and respiratory systems, and is compatible with other injectable drugs used as an infusion. Since a single drug does not have all these attributes, Two or more drugs are commonly used together to provide as many of these attributes as possible. Drugs that can be used to help reduce inhalant anesthetic requirements include opioids, ketamine, alpha-2 agonists, and lidocaine. Opioid administration is a popular PIVA technique. Opioids provide analgesia and have minimal cardiovascular effects. Full mu agonist opioids, such as fentanyl, morphine, or hydromorphone, are commonly used to help reduce inhalant anesthetic requirements and provide appropriate analgesia for moderate to severe pain. Ketamine is commonly used as an adjunctive drug. Ketamine provides analgesia, reduces MAC of inhalants, and treats or prevents wind-up and hyperalgesia by blocking central sensitization to repetitive pain impulses. Lidocaine also provides analgesia and has max sparing properties. Care must be taken when administering lidocaine to cats due to the increased risk of toxicity in the species. Alpha-2 agonist drugs such as dexmedetomidine or metatomidine provides analgesia, sedation, muscle relaxation, and max sparing effects. It is important to remember that alpha-2 agonists have dose-dependent cardiovascular effects. This includes bradycardia, bradyarrhythmias, and decreased cardiac output. Therefore, I recommend administering a low-dose dexmedetomidine infusion in sick or compromised patients when using this drug for PIVA. The results from a 2018 research study in the Journal of Veterinary Anesthesia and Analgesia evaluating the cardiopulmonary effects of dexmedetomidine infusion in isoflurane anesthetized healthy dogs concluded that major changes in its cardiovascular effects occurred between 0.5 and 1.2 micrograms per kilogram per hour. TIVA is an anesthetic maintenance technique using intravenous injectable anesthetic drugs in the absence of inhalant anesthetics. The need to perform anesthesia without the use of inhalants may occur for procedures involving the airway, such as tracheoscopy, bronchoscopy, laryngeal or pharyngeal surgery. Patients with space-occupying brain lesions or inflammatory brain disease are at risk for increased intracranial pressure. Isoflurane and sevoflurane can cause dose-dependent vasodilation and alter cerebral blood flow autoregulation, resulting in a further increase in intracranial pressure that can lead to brain herniation. Therefore, TIVA is the preferred anesthetic technique for these patients. There may also be situations where the use of inhalant anesthetic protocol is not possible due to location or availability. 
This includes performing anesthesia in remote locations and performing humanitarian work in third world countries where anesthetic machines are not always available. The ideal anesthetic drug produces unconsciousness, analgesia, and muscle relaxation. All these characteristics cannot be provided with a single drug. Therefore, a combination of injectable drugs is used for balanced anesthesia when using TIBA for surgical or painful diagnostic procedures. Many drugs can be used as a part of a TIVA regimen. Both propofol and alfaxalone are on label for both induction and maintenance of anesthesia. Propofol or alfaxalone typically uses the primary injectable anesthetic drugs, and opioids, ketamine, lidocaine, and or alpha-2 agonists are added to the combination, which will help to provide analgesia. The selection of which drugs to administer will depend on patient status, the planned procedure, and drug availability. It is important to remember that propofol, if used as a continuous infusion in cats, does have the potential for oxidative damage to red blood cells and Heinz body formation. Delayed recoveries may occur in cats following prolonged administration of propofol. The slow clearance and prolonged elimination half-life compared to dogs might be explained by reduced glucuronidation in this species. There are numerous peer-reviewed publications dedicated to using either drug for maintenance of anesthesia. In a 2012 research study in the Journal of Veterinary Anesthesia and Analgesia compared alfaxalone and propofol in dogs premedicated with morphine and acepromazine undergoing ovariohysterectomy. Anesthesia was induced and maintained with either propofol or alfaxalone. The authors concluded that both drugs produced adequate quality of anesthetic induction and maintenance. The cardiovascular changes were minimal and no apnea was observed. However, respiratory depression did occur in both groups with one dog in the propofol group requiring mechanical ventilation toward the end of the procedure. We can now use the information we have learned about the available maintenance drugs when we are developing an individualized anesthetic plan for each of our patients. Our current patient is Roxy, and we have been developing her anesthetic plan in previous podcast episodes. She is our happy, friendly Cocker Spaniel requiring anesthesia for a dental procedure. We know that Roxy is healthy, no cardiac, renal, or hepatic dysfunction, and she is not aggressive or fearful, but does struggle when restrained. We developed an appropriate premedication plan to provide sedation and analgesia. Roxy was calm and relaxed, and following pre-oxidation, we induced anesthesia with a rapid-acting intravenous drug. The next step is endotracheal intubation. This procedure is performed to protect the airway, prevent aspiration of regurgitant material, and to be able to assist or control ventilation. For more information on endotracheal intubation, be sure to watch our instructional video at thinkanesthesia.education. Now that Roxy is induced and intubated, we need to decide how we will maintain anesthesia for her planned dental procedure. Our choices are to use an inhalant anesthetic or a partial or total intravenous injectable technique. My preference is to start with inhalant anesthetic such as isoflurane. Knowing the MAC of isoflurane in dogs is 1.3%, and that a surgical plane of anesthesia is achieved at approximately 1.5 times MAC, this gives me an idea of what concentration I will deliver to the patient. However, I also take into consideration that the pre-medication drugs will lower the MAC value, which highlights the fact that you must evaluate your patient, determine anesthetic depth, and adjust your vaporizer dial setting accordingly. Now, this is a good time to discuss the concept of time constants and how it impacts your vaporizer dial setting. A time constant is the volume of the anesthetic machine 
divided by the flow of gases. When you alter the vaporizer setting, it will take approximately three multiples of a time constant before the concentration of the anesthetic in the breathing circuit is approximately the same as the vaporizer setting. For example, if your anesthetic machine and breathing system have a total volume of five liters and your oxygen flow is one liter per minute, the time constant is five liters divided by one liter per minute or five minutes. We then know that will take approximately 15 minutes, which is three times the time constant, to approach a steady state with the anesthetic concentration. Now, increasing your oxygen flow rate will speed up the rate of change, which can be done when you want to alter anesthetic depth quickly. For Roxy, I will monitor her cardiovascular status vigilantly throughout the anesthetic period. If hypotension occurs due to decreased cardiac output or vasodilation caused by isoflurane, then I will be ready to switch to a PIVA technique and use an injectable drug to help reduce the isoflurane concentration while still maintaining an appropriate anesthetic depth. This may be accomplished by administering an opioid, ketamine, or dexamethasone because of their analgesia and max bearing effects. If Roxy had significant underlying disease, such as severe mitral valve insufficiency, she may not tolerate isoflurane well at all. In this situation, I will be prepared to transition her to a TIVA technique and likely choose alfaxone as the primary injectable drug. When performing TIVA with an injectable anesthetic, the anesthetist should consult the product label and literature for rates of drug infusion and pharmacokinetics of the drug in individual species. In addition, knowing time variables such as the context-sensitive half-time of the drug will give the anesthetist valuable information on how rapidly drug concentration changes with a change in rate of drug delivery and how recovery times are affected by duration of drug administration. Throughout maintenance of anesthesia, the most important monitoring method is a dedicated and skilled anesthetist who is continuously assessing Roxy's status and NSF depth and intervening when required. At the end of the procedure, we are ready to discontinue the maintenance of anesthetic drug and prepare for the next step in the anesthesia process, recovery from anesthesia. Stay tuned for our next episode where we will discuss anesthetic recovery, including identification and treatment strategies for the painful patient, post-anesthetic dysphoria, and emergence delirium. We will also discuss reasons for a prolonged recovery. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Think Anesthesia Veterinary Continuing Education podcast series brought to you by Jurox Animal Health. Jurox is committed to improving the quality of anesthesia globally. As a part of this commitment, we have produced a series of race-approved CE content. Be sure to visit thinkanesthesia.education for a listing of CE material, including podcasts. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Martinez, and remember, when you think anesthesia, think Jurox.